Hello everyone, and welcome to what we are now calling part one of our end of 2016 podcast. It's part one because um, we had our usual chat um, looking back at uh, the best things about 2016 and touching on some of the worst. Um, uh, in the company of a uh, regular guest, Chris Ward, and uh, our Scottish music man, Wesley Shearer, um, who returned uh, after appearing on this last year. And the chat ended up being a little bit longer than normal, um, well over two hours, to be honest. And we thought we can't ask people to sit down and listen to two hours uh, of us um, gabbing on at a time. So this is part one. And it deals with um, film and books. Um, and later in the month, we think round about Christmas Eve, or maybe perhaps on Christmas Eve, you'll get part two, which is a good hour's worth of chat on music, um, Scottish and otherwise. Um, so if you like your music, you certainly don't want to miss that one. But as I say, this is films and this is books, the best of both from 2016. And I'll shut up now and see you on the other side of this. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our end of year best of 2016 podcast. And once again, I'm joined by Wesley Shearer. Hello, Wesley. How you doing, Ali? Good to have you back. Cheers. And uh, the always present <laughs> Chris Walt. Hi, uh... Um, always present the nicest thing anybody <laughs> <laughs> he's always yeah. here um, thanks again for coming along doing this um, so it's the usual thing we're going to have a look at films the books and the music the best stuff and maybe even some of the worst stuff of um, 2016 um, some people say it's been a strange year it certainly has but we'll, yeah. we'll probably stay we'll probably will touch on that at some point but um, I think mainly we're going to concentrate on the good stuff. Um, Chris, if you want to kick us off with film, yeah. what's been your kind of top films of the year? Um, well, it's a rarity this year, and then my genuine favourite film of the year has actually been a Scottish film, which is not something I get to say too often, in all sincerity, without seeming like I'm pandering to... <laughs> to <laughs> You're fulfilling your grief. Um, <laughs> yeah, but um, no, my favourite film of the year was Where You're Meant to Be. Ah, um, starring you and me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, full disclosure. It's not just because me and Ali feature prominently in, in one shot of the climactic barrel lines gig. Um, no, I just thought it was absolutely, absolutely tremendous. I mean, I've been anticipating it for a while. Um, big Arab Strap fan, as we've been over on this podcast many, many times. Um, I'm sure we even talked about the gig itself. We, we did, to, we did. Uh, on that end of year pod a couple of years ago, it was... Okay, so for anybody who isn't familiar with it, I suppose we should catch them up on what it is. So um, off the back of the, the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow a couple of years ago as part of the cultural programme, Aidan Moffat, former member of Arab Strap, um, was given funding to do a kind of concert tour of Scotland uh, where he reworked versions of traditional folk songs into his own idiom, which meant they were full of dirty jokes and swearing and everything that you'd expect from Aidan Moffat and were hilarious as well. Um, and he went around Scotland with the band, including James Graham from Twilight Sad, um, and uh, Stevie Jones from Alhambra uh, Tragedo, and he's played with a bunch of other other guys as well, and uh, Jenny Reed from Strike Colours and Body Parts, and uh, they played 
kind of free shows all over the place. They played up in the Highlands, played at Fazlane Peace Camp, they played in just tiny towns all over the country, and then ended up with the climactic gig at the Barrowlands, and kind of threaded through it is uh, Aidan Moffat's kind of combative relationship with Sheila Stewart, traditional yeah. folk singer, who is very determined that he not change the songs as they've been passed down to her. Um, and it's quite open about the fact that Sheila Stewart died shortly after um, they completed filming, like that's threaded through the film as well. The whole mm-hmm. thing is kind of this structure that Aidan Moffat kind of having a conversation with her after she's died, so that's not a spoiler, I know people are very phobic <laughs> or stuff like that these yeah. days, that's outlined. It's made very clear from the very beginning that Sheila is sadly no longer with us, but uh, it's, it's just absolutely beautiful. It's just a really, it's one of those films that like, it could have been so parochial and cuthy and, you know, like just warm, nostalgic, whatever, but it's so full of life and so humanistic. And oh, so it could have been um, Moffat kind of taking the mic. Taking the piss, yeah, um, Although he never set out to do that. Some no. people thought that's kind of what he was going to yeah. do to begin with, I think. But I think Sheila yeah, thought that as well. Absolutely. But it's so full of life and just so wise and warm and like just absolutely beautiful, really moving and just doesn't waste time. It's over and done in like an hour and 20 minutes or something, you know, which I appreciate as well. Like, full of narrative economy. Just like a really, really beautiful piece of work. Have you, did you get it to see it? I must confess, I've still not seen it yet. Ah, I had a ticket to see the screening at the, was it the Barrowlands, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and I never made it along for whatever reason, and I've still not gotten to watch it yet. Um, I missed that Barrowlands one, it was on it was the same night as something else. Was yeah. I think I had a gig or something. There was something else on that night, and I couldn't go with that one, but I went to the, the second screening later in the film festival, and uh, Aidan Moffat turned up for Q&A afterwards with the director with Paul Fagan. Paul Fagan's his name. I think so. Yeah, and... Um, uh, yeah, they did a Q&A afterwards, and uh, it was actually really, really lovely in and of itself. There was a group of folk there from the travelling community, Sheila Stewart herself was part of the travelling community, and um, a woman stood up and said how glad she was to see like their community represented so kind of positively on film as well, which is something that like they've never really had you know, in, for a long time, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, it was really nice to see. Because that's the kind of thing that maybe wouldn't even occur to you as you were watching it, you know, that like this is something that you don't see put on film that often, is like that kind of side of life or whatever, yeah. or that kind of lifestyle, and um, yeah, so I think it's just it's just been a massive success all around, it's kind of um, it's turned out better. Before you go into the other films that you enjoyed during the year, it actually links to when I was going to talk about, so I might as well do it now, yeah. which was Hamish, which was the... Um, documentary about the late Hamish Henderson and actually Sheila Stewart links the two because she appears as a younger woman in the Hamish documentary because one of the things she did was to um, go around gathering these songs and making sure that they weren't lost you know these folk songs that were often handed down by word of mouth or you know talk from mother to daughter or whatever and he actually you know had a collection of them and, and went to the people in that community that you're talking about and um, listen to them and uh, a bit similar to what Moffat ends up doing actually sits and listens and, and tries to understand the reasons that these songs were as they were and why they're so important to someone that's in the Stuart and the rest of the community. Um, Amish is another amazing, really moving film. Um, I don't greet too often in the cinema, mm-hmm. but I certainly did. And it was again, it was a packed out showing there was members of the family and the audience at the GFT and uh, this incredible man who fought in uh, for his country when, as he was younger, um, he was given seniority at a young age and um, 
and came home. There was lots of incredible stories about uh, his upbringing and who and who his real father was. Um, he just fell in love with Scottish song and, and kind of Scottish tradition, Scottish tradition. At a time when it really wasn't that cool a thing to do, you know, the kind of mid 20th century, it really wasn't. Um, they were seen as kind of eccentrics, you know, McDermott's and, uh, and people like that, Muir, who kind of went into that. So it just had a character who just had this incredible zest and lust for life and everything he did uh, was actually to encourage other people to enjoy themselves as well, listen to this music, fall in love with it. Um, uh, it's a fantastic documentary and if you haven't seen it, I suggest um, you should check it out. But yes, uh, what else did you... Um, um, well, connect? before we leave the, uh, the film festival behind completely, the one of the other highlights of me, uh, for me from the film festival, I don't know if it even actually got a general release, was a film with the... Uh, let me take a deep breath for the title. Called uh, The Sky Trembles and the Earth is Afraid and the Two Eyes Are Not Brothers, um, which is a late film by Ben Rivers, who is a kind of a visual artist. He's done uh, kind of non I think non-fiction they'd call it rather than documentary. In the past, his last film was called A Spell Ward of the Darkness, and they kind of explored the kind of black metal scene. In oh, okay. And that it followed a, like the lead singer of a, of a black metal band who's American around uh, first in kind of like a hippie commune and somewhere in Scandinavia and then kind of just wandered through wilderness and then the third part is like an unbroken half hour shot of him performing in a concert with his band. I'm not a massive metal guy so it, like I, that film didn't really work for me to the extent I would have liked it to. You know, like I really appreciate what he was trying to do with it but it's just not but the music that just, I enjoy yeah, yeah. particularly much. But this one is um, again kind of non-fiction kind of but blurs the lines a little bit so it starts off as a documentary on the making of um, a French filmmaker called Oliver Lax, uh, his second film, Mimosas, um, which is he's shooting in the foothills of the Atlas Mountains in North Africa. And it starts off as quite observational, um, just kind of quiet, you know, again, long shots, some unhurried rhythms. But then at the halfway point, it kind of diverges into just pure horror, uh, where he's abducted by like a gang of roving bandits, um, is like kidnapped, tortured, and made to wear like this suit of like tin cans and dance for them and it's terrifying like it's like it's, it's quite pure, funny as well it's, <laughs> it's in the abstract it's quite funny <laughs> but it's like it's absolutely terrifying to watch it's, it taps into that same kind of primal force or something like the wicker man where it's just yeah. someone who is completely in over their head in an environment they don't understand and these things are happening to them for reasons beyond their comprehension and no one knows that they're there and it's just absolutely like I saw it was a man eh? I saw it was like middle of the afternoon and I walked out in the sunlight and it was just absolutely shaking <laughs> like it was just some of the purest and most primal like horror that I've seen in, in years and it's just it, it happens so naturalistically as part of the film you know like the, the style from the first half of the film carries over into the second so when, I, when all this stuff starts happening you're like this can't actually be had. This isn't part of the documentary, right? Like even just stand by and film while this guy's tongue was cut out or anything like that. You know, it's it's really genuinely like bracing. Um, but yeah, it just it's it's a one-off kind of thing. It's one of those things that like again, I don't know how wide an audience there is for it, how many people will sit through the first half in order to reach the second. But mm -hmm. it's one of those ones that once you see it, you're never forgetting it. It's just totally lodged in your. Is it one of these ones you wouldn't want to watch again? 
Maybe. I don't know. Like, I mean, now that I know where it goes, I'd, like, I'd maybe appreciate the first half more knowing what was coming in the second, you know, because the first half, I'm going to admit, the first half is not a chore as such, but it's certainly quite slow going and okay. a little bit harder work than, than the second half, but it's worth persevering with. But yeah, that was another standout from, from the film festival for me uh, this year. Cool. So, yeah. Um, other than that, uh, in terms of like kind of indie stuff, if you want to call it, I don't even know if you can call it. It's so hard to differentiate between like indie stuff. He's just funding comes from all over the place. Like I was going to recommend uh, Paris and the new Jim Jarmusch film, but that's got a big Amazon logo at the start because they're <laughs> distributing it. So well, talk yeah, a little bit about distribution. I'm yeah. really interested in the way it's changing, but on your yeah, um, but Paris and wonderful as well. Like Jim Jarmusch is kind of. Very strong run just now between that and um, Only Lovers Left Alive is his first film since then. Oh, he also made a documentary about Studios did, this year, yeah. which I didn't get to see yet. Um, but yeah, Patterson follows uh, Adam Driver, who plays a bus driver called Patterson, who lives in Patterson, New Jersey. Uh, and it just kind of details it's a week in his life, so it goes a day by day structure from Monday to Sunday and just follows his daily routine. He's uh, a bus driver for a living, but he's a poet around that, and it just kind of Falls and kind of writing poems on his lunch break, you know, before his shift starts, and just appreciating the ways that creativity can be part of someone's life, even if they're not published, even if they don't have great success outside of their own. You know, he hasn't published his poems, no one else has seen them except for his wife. Right. Um, but it's just a look at how rewarding it can be to have a creative outlet. Yeah. That you're not doing you're, it particularly doing to make it. money or to yeah. become famous or anything it's like that. It's just to, to, you know, get your thoughts down on paper and how rewarding a life that can be, like the value of like routine and repetition and just kind of, you know, getting stuff done just because mm-hmm. you feel you have a need to express something, you know, and how, it's the, again, it's the kind of thing that cinema doesn't really celebrate that often because it always looks as you know history is written by the winners you know whenever yeah. you get a biopic of somebody it's always somebody who has you know gone on to great acclaim or you know yeah. someone who's celebrated and it's just nice to see a film where it's someone who maybe doesn't have that but is still you know doing something worthwhile and it recognises that as worthwhile and it just it's almost like a kind of especially in this year just a vision of like a world where everybody just gets on does their thing is quite happy just of themselves. It seems like almost utopian. You know, <laughs> the feel normal. Yeah, film of the year. exactly. Yeah, something like that. Um, I also really, again blurring the lines between Indian mainstream. I'm not really sure of, like where all this one came from. It was divisive, but I loved uh, American Honey. Uh, Anne Arnold. Oh yeah, film. I haven't seen that. Yeah, it's her first one since. Uh, Sheila Booth always. I always kind of bristle a little. You know what? I I think like I know like, he's one of these guys that like the persona can put a lot of people off. I think when he gets a chance to actually do good work, he's often very good in the role. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just it's three hours long, nearly. It flies by. Yeah, it really is lengthy, but it uh, yeah, absolutely flew by for me. I mean, I saw it at the end of a very long weekend <laughs> where I was I almost didn't go see it because I was like I'm shattered, but I just did not feel like sitting down for a three hour film about nothing in particular. But. Uh, <laughs> Put, put that on the poster. Three hour film about nothing in particular. Oh, that is underselling. That's, you know, that's the film. But, um, you know, it's one of these ones that's like, it's not the most plot driven of films. And, um, yeah, I, I just. I was just conscious of the fact that if I didn't go see it there and then I might not get another chance to see it. So I forced myself to go and absolutely was just bowled over by it. It's just one of these things that has some of the most absolutely amazing like marriages of image and sound of the year like the soundtrack is just constant it doesn't let up it's just like needle drop after needle drop like the kids in the film so it's about like a, a teenager um from 
the Midwest in America or rural America who um, like has a terrible home situation you know she's living in poverty she's got like younger brothers and sisters and um, she just kind of runs out on it one day and joins a, a crew of uh, magazine sellers like other teenagers who go across the country in a van mm-hmm. selling magazine subscriptions in Barrett Commons you know it's clearly some kind of scam right. um, and it's just about her kind of finding community with them um, but yeah, as I say, the soundtrack is just constant. It's like it's like so much contemporary hip hop and R and B. Like there's a big moment where they all start dancing to Rihanna in a supermarket. Um, and yeah, it's just this. It's just really again full of energy. And like a realistic scene, not like yeah, a, yeah. And it's not like a musical number. It's just it comes on the speakers and everybody just starts okay. kind of singing along with it. And like child like jumps up on a checkout and starts giving you know that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, just again so because Andrea Arnold you think she made Red Road yeah right? she made Red Road and Fish Tank Fish uh, Tank that was one I couldn't remember and uh, she adapted Wuthering Heights as yeah, well which so, is a fantastic yeah. version um, so this is her first American film and it's got that same kind of thing as maybe like Paris, Texas or something like that where it's an outsider's view of America you yeah. know so it maybe romanticises it to a degree and it's not afraid to go you know broad and play with big kind of obvious symbols you know like there's at one point like a woman wearing a set of like um, like confederate flag underwear you know that kind, of, that kind of thing it really like doesn't shy away from big you know potentially cliched images but uh, it just it's so energetic and so it taps into something in like youth culture just now that I was willing to forgive it, like all of that cool. that, was, that was great um, in terms of like bigger stuff I mean it's weird talking about some of these things because like, it feels like they came out so long ago with stuff from like the start of the year um, I thought The Hateful Eight was really strong Tarantino's okay. last film like absolutely loved it I didn't like Django Unchained at all yeah. that, was, that was the first kind of forward for me like I've stayed with Tarantino through everything Django so I felt both Kill Bills both Kill Bills Death Proof you know all of it but uh, Django was where it felt like he'd, he'd lost his footing a little bit for me but he came back really strong with The Hateful Eight I think and again it really tapped into something um, in the zeitgeist <laughs> just now like America having to face up to what is done <laughs> okay. um, uh, well, what it's about to do I'm kind of reckoning for, for its sins um, but yeah really and again, okay. like, I'm glad to see the western come back in a big way as well like Bone Tomahawk who was, who was really strong as well which was a kind of horror western like yeah, it was like kind of yeah westerns western seem to be um, kind of territory. yeah westerns yeah. seem to be making a, a, a come there was yeah. so west last I think yeah, it was yeah, last year a fantastic yeah. film yeah. But, um, uh. um, and in terms of like other kind of big names doing strong work this year the Coen Brothers Hail Caesar I really oh, enjoyed yeah, it was absolutely fantastic. fantastic again another example of their like kind of like lighter ones not necessarily being as light as they first appear to be I think there's a lot more substance to it than a lot of people gave it credit for there's a lot of like a quite serious examination of like faith <laughs> you know like yeah. faith and belief um, which you wouldn't necessarily expect from uh, a, a film with a very homoerotic musical number with Chang Tatum and a bunch of sailors um, <laughs> singing no names um, uh, Shane Black's comeback the nice guys his return to actually doing what he actually does best rather than um, getting Marvel to pay him um, so he could go make it his last film before this was Iron Man 3 yeah, has no traces of Shane Black but this is the this is the good this is the pure unfiltered hit of Shane Black that I've been waiting for since Kiss Kiss Bang Bang came out uh, Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling like fantastic both of them like really amazing pairing um, great chemistry both yeah. hilarious like I haven't laughed harder at any film this year um, there's one key moment where Ryan Gosling channels Abbott and Castell expertly and it's <laughs> absolutely 
hilarious. Um, but no, yeah. yeah, it's funny. The last Boy Scout was on TV the other night. I haven't seen it in years, which was an early Henry yeah. Black script. And it's brilliant. It's full of zingers. It's yeah. full of like, just few people can write a kind of cool script like uh, like he can. Yeah, absolutely great. And um, I don't know. It's one of those ones when I first saw it. I was like, I don't know how I feel about this in comparison to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. But at the same time, it's got it's kind of got even more of a shaggy dog quality and a more kind of relaxed pace than Kiss Kiss Bang Bang does. But I'm just happy for him. Even if he like only does one of these every five, six, seven years or something, I'm happy. I'm always happy to go back to yeah. Shane Blackland. You know. Yeah. Um, it's always Christmas in Shane Blackland. It's always Christmas in Shane Blackland. <laughs> Um, in terms of like other American stuff, uh, Richard Linklater's Everybody Wants Some, mm-hmm. like a lot. Um, his follow up to Boyhood is uh, kind of a his take on a campus comedy, uh, like end of the seventies, early eighties, kind of apparently largely uh, autobiographical. Um, his usual kind of again humanistic take on you know just characters that have the potential to be repellent stereotypes, you know, but he just invests everybody with so much love and warmth and affection that you kind of go along with it. Um, Robert Eggers' The Witch, which is one of the great debuts of this year. Know, know, again, a horror film, what on its surface, but really maybe has more in common with the likes of Dreyer and Bergman. You know, just very austere, deliberate framing, and uh, builds to one of my favorite endings of any film this year, which would be completely terrible to spoil on this. But um, yeah, the the climactic scene of, of the witch is is fairly jaw dropping. Um, uh, Mia Hansen loves things to come. I really like. She's the, the French filmmaker who made uh, Eden, which I think we talked about last year, which mm-hmm. was a film about the kind of French touch scene, like um, the rise of Daft Punk and all, right. uh, all the kind of associated acts around them. So this one uh, stars Isabel Huppert, in contention for yeah. the greatest actress in the world, and uh, she's a philosophy professor whose life starts to unravel in various ways, but she deals with it with grace and good humor and dignity because she's Isabel Huppert and that just comes naturally to her. Um, and yeah, again, just it's another one where the kind of the details make it uh, sound again in the abstract. You can say that, and it's something that nobody would ever want to sit through. But uh, to watch just a she's, she's been in a few films that yeah, well, yeah. yeah, yeah. But um, again, it's very like human, warm, and wise. And uh, yeah, I think that's that's. I'll leave it there. I think <laughs> <laughs> real terrific. But I will put in a shame for the conclusion of one of my favorite trilogies to come out of Hollywood in recent years, which was the Purge election year. Uh, oh, the no, I saw the Purge the first yeah, yeah. Uh, The first one is okay, the, but Purge Anarchy is. I'm, gonna, I'm doing the Italian chef. He's, he's smacking his lips. Yeah, um, like a pure shot of um, like Greenhouse throwback and uh, election year. Didn't quite hit the peaks of Anarchy, but uh, it was uh, very much uh, welcome this year <laughs> of all years. <laughs> Wesley, have you any time for any trips to the cinema this year? I have actually, I started going a lot more towards the end of the year and the list of indie films I've got to catch up with are as long as my lanky spindly arms but <laughs> um, I've, in terms of the kind of more bigger releases well actually saying that, going back to the early earlier in the year I don't know if it's fair to, do you know what, it is fair to include it because it was a January release over here mm-hmm. but it was in everybody's end of year list last year was Room, oh, yeah, Room yeah. for me was just astonishing like sitting in that cinema watching that film knowing what the subject matter was about and mm-hmm. how how it really could have been driven down a different path in terms of kind of crassness or poor taste yeah. um, that actually shook me to my core it like I was actually shaking in the, yeah. Yeah, in the cinema watching that film um, that was a real standout for me at the start of the year but as I say that was kind of more of a uh, end of year list from last but um, Anomalisa really took me by surprise this year I really, really liked that. Um, it's had a lot of sniffy reviews. It's had a lot of kind of 
contrasting the views. I know a lot of people who have held it as one of Charlie Kaufman's best and mm-hmm. others who have said it's nowhere near as good as uh, his previous work. But, yeah, for me, it just... It's such a weird film to describe because you describe an Annalisa to people and why you enjoyed it. And, I mean, the whole premise of it is just so overwhelmingly depressing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's probably one of his most human films yeah. that he's ever made, I think. Um, it just does, like... Even from the very, very opening scene, just the subtle attention to detail that he pays to, like, even some of the foley work that's on it and some of the other things that gets added to it. Um, just the way that these characters, it's all stop motion animation for anyone who hasn't seen it, so it's not um, real, real actors, but it was based on a radio play which he then took into um, this kind of stop motion film. And yeah, that was pretty astonishing. Um, very, very grim, there's not really any sort of nice, nicely rounded payoff. Yeah. It just kind of leaves you just sitting like, wow, this is. This is depressing, but it's um, if you want a kind of challenging film to that's to watch, but it's also very simple to follow. Then right. I think that's a good one to check out from kind of Kaufman's body of work. Um, but yeah, very recently the one that's kind of stuck with me was um, Arrival. To be honest, Denis Villeneuve. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I think it's Vinou. Maybe potentially. I'm looking at Chris here for some. I've always gone with Villeneuve. Yeah, let's go yeah. for Villeneuve. Yeah, so. He's, he's been a kind of funny one for me, like, I remember when he brought out Prisoners and that was one of those ones I just kind of went to see on a whim, mm-hmm. enjoyed it more than I thought I did. It had some kind of redeeming qualities to it, but overall it wasn't particularly brilliant, but it was, you know, a good foray into the kind of mainstream cinema, if you like, because um, sure. I think he'd just done French language films before that. And then Sicario was one of those films that I felt like I enjoyed at the time and the more I, th- the more I thought about it, the more I hated it. Um, because you've got this kind of lead, lead female character who is supposed to be really strong and she's painted that way and then by the last third of the film the whole thing unravels and she's an emotional wreck who's relying on you know, the men around her to, to prop her up and save her. So um, that kind of was a sore one for me, but it was beautiful and the score was fantastic. But Arrival was obviously the first one I've seen him kind of moving into the sci-fi territory. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like it's like sci-fi with a proper um, like melancholic heart to it. Um, yeah, like even at its most implausible, it was still still a really really good film to watch. And yeah, it was like an alien, one of these alien invasion films where the aliens actually just aren't really a part of the film. Aren't yeah. Really like part like the timing of its release as well was kind of uncanny with you know Trump and Brexit and everything else that's kind of happening in the political climate at the moment. Um, it seemed a really good film to hammer home the good. idea of communicating. Yeah, it's about communication, isn't it? I've yeah, seen it, I have to yeah say. It's about communication and about, you know, looking at things from a different point of view. And and for, like, without spoiling anything, because it's not a spoiler, but at least the female character in this film actually stays strong and independent mm-hmm. throughout, right till the very end. I mean, it's, it's cheesy in parts and it's got, a, you know, a kind of romance running through it, but... It's shot beautifully. I mean, it owes a lot to Kubrick and more than more yeah. than one or it's two. Shot is. by uh, Bradford Young, who's the guy who shot um, Selma. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. And um, a most violent year a couple of years ago. He's like a really up and coming cinematographer. He's one of these guys that you see his name in the credits, and you know that you're at least going to see something that looks yeah. great. Um, what did you think about the film? Uh, I liked how process driven it was. I liked how much of it was just a case of them like kind of trial and error, you know, just yeah. going back, trying the same thing over and over again with minor variations and uh, to try and communicate with them. Um, again, I think I, I've got a kind of quite similar take on it to Wesley. Not everything about it worked for me, and I haven't really liked a lot of Villeneuve stuff before, 
But um, yeah, I think this is definitely the, the strongest thing I've seen from. Um, and again, like I say, it's technically impeccable. Like you know, if nothing yeah. else, you've got like the the visuals as I say, Brad Blaine and the music by John Johansson. Oh, the yeah, music, yeah, uh, is is okay. tremendous as well. Um, and Amy Adams is fantastic. Oh, she, yeah, because I think I did the double bill with that with that Nocturnal Animals, which was so beautifully shot that it was almost flawed because of it. Yeah. Um. So seeing Amy Adams in both of those roles, like within 24 hours of each other like that arrival was her film in a way that she wasn't really allowed to kind of shine in Nocturnal Animals a little bit because I think Tom Ford had just kind of got his stranglehold and everyone in the film and just didn't allow any I'm interested space. in Tom Ford as a filmmaker yes I don't know yeah. part, partly you think should this work at all but and it's so surface yeah um, but there is substance to these films as well I think I didn't see Nocturnal Animals. I remember liking a uh, single man. Single man, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I haven't seen Nocturnal Animals yet. I've heard that's another one I've heard very mixed. And yeah. Like wildly diverse. Well, I mean, I think that's like Kaufman. I think he will split a lot of people. Really I think the thing with Nocturnal Animals was that Tom Ford is clearly talented, and um, you know, from the aesthetics point of view, and even from you know a, the way that he directs these these scripts, but. I think he's clearly at a higher standard than a lot of other directors considering it's only what his second film. So when you came out not when I came out of Nocturnal Animals, my main frustration was that it was so particular and so perfect that mm-hmm. it stopped it from being a five star film for me, that it brought it down to a four star film. That's such a weird criticism I think. But as I said, there was a, there other parts of the film where I thought they could have taken the story in a different direction, mm-hmm. but it just stopped from letting those actors in the breathe in the film and in the roles mm-hmm. um, in the way that Arrival didn't because as I said it was very much a way that Amy Adams kind of carried that whole way through but for me basically that the promising thing is that he's now going to direct Blade Runner the, the second Blade Runner so 2049 or whatever it's called so now that he's done a sci-fi film I'm kind of like oh well maybe I'm not too yeah, not too worried, too about, worried about Blade Runner now um, I've still got a lot of reservations about it but um, at least I know that you can maybe direct some sci-fi so that's that's promising and if, if it's not good then at least I know the score will be good so <laughs> yeah um, I'm just going to mention before we move on to books um, I, I was going to mention uh, where you meant to be because I get like you I thought it was an amazing film and really not what I expected I thought um, it would be a kind of slightly light musical travelogue or something like that ended up with this big concert at the Barras which does happen in a way but the, the personal relationship between Sheila Stewart and Aidan Moffat um, is just wonderful and a bit like the best of his songs they can be kind of body and filthy and all that things but they can also kind of break your heart and move you in ways that you really don't expect um, Hamish we've spoken about but the other one is I just saw this recently and it's called 16 Years Till Summer Again, it's a documentary um, set in the Highlands over filmed over four years, and we're following this character called Ishdan, a kind of Gaelic name, and he's we find out. I'm trying again avoiding spoilers, but we find out early on he's now looking after his elderly father. He's um, out of jail. They've allowed him out of jail, where he's serving time for murder, um, to look after uh, his father. And I really can't say much more to it than that <laughs> without spoiling things, but it's incredible. I mean, it's... Uh, you wouldn't, you think it's this mean? If you were to write the plot of this film, you would know it's ridiculous. But 
the characters in it and this, this kind of central character who's a real fantasist, you know, who really thinks, well, life, he's been a heroin addict and he's uh, problems in his past and his, goes, goes on to problems in his future. Um, it's, it's quite astonishing. It's not really like anything about it. It feels unfinished, but only because it's real life. So it's not going to be tied up and, you know, happy or whatever, or, or go in the direction that you expect. And you never hear anyone speaking to him from behind the camera. He just speaks to the camera. So it's almost like you and he are having this conversation and you're like, oh, don't do that, don't do that. And then with everyone that's involved, you just have your head in your hands at times. But, um, yeah, 16 Years to Summer, uh, you should really check it out. It was on at the GFT just recently, and I think it might make an appearance at this year's um, film festival as well, which I'm looking forward to. But um, books of the year, uh, I'm going to go through a few, but oh no, we're going to talk briefly about the way films, I promise it's the way films are now marketed. <laughs> um, just because, you know, you mentioned uh, the different, you know, indie films and you said about big blockbusters, but increasingly it seems, that this all came about because I wanted to see Ron Howard Beatles film. And I couldn't find out where it was going to be on in Glasgow. And I think it was on one day and then away again. And then it's now out in DVD, but you could watch it online. And it, compare this to uh, Ron Howard's, was it Inferno, the latest um, yeah, the, the, Dan, Dan Brown, Brown thing, which was on everywhere for about a week to people realise it's rubbish and it came down again. <laughs> so just this way of treating films like, you know... I mean, when the new Rogue One comes out, it's probably going to be in every, you know, cinema. I counted up yesterday on Friday in the cinema world in Renfrew Street alone, there are 26 screenings of Rogue One. You know, so, uh, I mean, what's, how do you think indie cinema, uh, and we're going to talk about indie publishing and indie music labels as well later on, but how indie cinema is going to kind of get around this, because they're not going to end up in these places. I mean, I don't know, I... It's, it's a difficult one because on the one hand like, I can kind of obviously see the need to continue to make money by any means necessary you know at the end of the day it's a business you know yeah. and people need to get their films out to audiences so whether that's a case of I mean I don't know if Ron Howard is necessarily the best example of indie cinema <laughs> no <laughs> I, I don't mean indie cinema yeah, just thing, but I, I know what you mean in terms of like um, like the you find it more and more with kind of music documentaries in particular that they become these one night special things or like a gig like, almost yeah and it's inflated ticket prices as well they did the same thing with the Nick Cave film uh, yeah. What's More With Feeling which I still haven't seen because again like the only screens were these one off you know like we sold out like that you know because people love Nick Cave and people especially this album had so much publicity around mm-hmm. because of the circumstances that led to it or that happened while it was being made um, people were, were obviously keen to see it and it's shot in 3D as well, which makes it an art thing you would, would be really good to see mm-hmm. in the cinema. But they did a one night only kind of thing with it the night before the album came out, and then that was it. I think they maybe did like a one encore screen on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, that's the one I managed to yeah. go to see, so yeah. Um, but I still haven't seen it, and again, it's frustrating, but I mean, it'll come out on DVD and Blu ray, and I'm sure yeah. it'll be on video on demand soon enough. But it's again finding like the audience for stuff like this, even like obviously, you know, God love the GFD, it does mm-hmm. great work. But at the same time, it's frustrating when, you know, the more kind of esoteric niche stuff that the GFT should be there to, to cater for and provide, you know, provide a home for, um, gets shunted to the side so that they can screen, like, you know, a 
Arrival for Fortnite. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, Arrival doesn't really need the help. Arrival like went to number one in the US box office. It has Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner, you know? I get why um, GFT would have an interest in showing it, because they showed Passport Confidentiality before he kind of went, went mainstream in mm-hmm. very commas, you know, and maybe they want to have the continuity of, you know, an auteur or something like that. But at the same time, there's quite often a sense in some of their programming choices that it's for people who are too snobby to go to the cinema world, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, films, to see it's films film. that will get shown at every other multiplex. And it's yeah. like, well, again, GFT has to make his money somehow. Sure. And, and you know, but it, it means that there's a kind of a hole almost that doesn't get filled where the films that should be playing for a week, a fortnight in GFT to give people a chance to see them come and go in a couple of days. Mm-hmm. They're on at like 10 past two in the afternoon as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, and it, it's really frustrating. I think a lot of, I think there's been an acceptance to the degree that a lot of people now, rather than go to the cinema, are quite comfortable just staying at home and doing mm-hmm. video on demand or, you know, renting. Uh, like, most of the, the smaller films, most of the stuff that we play at the GFT now, I catch up on on Blu-ray, I rent it yeah. at the end of the year, which is why, you know, a lot, I'm still, there's still so much from this year that I have to catch up on. Um, I think as well, like, it's something to do with the, the rise of digital, uh, yeah. certainly for me, is yeah. that it feels like less of a, like some event going to the cinema almost because the, the print that you're seeing is essentially the same print you're going to see when you watch it at home in the same kind of quality you know if you if you get a blu-ray uh, on your tv it's more or less identical to a digital projection mm-hmm. it's not i mean you get the experience of watching it with a crowd at the cinema but you're not really losing anything in terms of the quality that, in the same way that you would if you went and saw like a 35 mil projection or something like that. there's nothing unique about yeah. the print anymore which is why maybe people are okay wait the worst absolute worst example of this is um, Cineworld, obviously enough, like funnily enough, for when you're talking about crimes against cinema. Um, so their big thing just now to try and get people back to cinema is you know all the gimmicks. So there's four DX when your seat moves, and there's like rain and wind and stuff. There's the VIP <laughs> screens where yeah, there's the VIP screen where you can pay like thirty quid and you get yeah, and I you get, that you get like a buffet and a reclining seat and stuff like this. And then there's a super screen which is like not quite an IMAX, but it's bigger than a usual cinema screen. To make room for that super screen, the super screen is on the first floor of the cinema world, it's in what was the biggest screen mm. anyway. To make room for that, they made the screen next to it smaller, which uh, means that the screen is now only as wide as standard widescreen. So if you see it in the shop in cinema school, it's letterboxed. Mm. And it's like, why would I go to the cinema to see a letterboxed film? Like sure. that just fully like rams home that there's essentially no difference between you know watching it at home on your tv it's the same thing you'd watch it if you're watching a film that was shot in that aspect ratio at home it would have the black bars at the top and bottom one of the big advantages of seeing it in the cinema is it fills the yeah, screen it and now it's not even filling the screen then what's the point in going to the cinema you know i mean i think you were glad you saw nick cave in the cinema rather than just waiting for oh, it oh yeah 100 percent. i mean um well <laughs> partly because i don't i think the experience washes off more being in the cinema because I don't think I've ever seen. I don't think I've ever been in a screening that was full and sold out. Where at the end of the film, every single person remained in their seat until the last credit rolled and the house lights went up and then all left in utter silence. So wow. that's the thing that makes that film stick with you even more yeah. because you've watched it in a cinema. Yeah. You've watched it with potentially like-minded people because it's mm-hmm. because it's a Nick Cave film. It's pretty niche as much as it's got a bigger feel and so yeah. screens across the UK, but. As Chris was saying, you go to the cinema to get that certain experience that you don't get when you're at home. Sometimes, and a lot of the time when you're watching it in big multiplexes like Cineworld, that experience that you don't get at home can be detrimental to the film, but that's the risk you take when you go to the cinema. But you go to see it on a massive screen, and that's exactly the first thing I noticed when I went to the screen next door to the super screen and noticed a letterbox, and I was like, 
what is this? Why am I here sitting watching this film in, in this way? Like, that is insane just because of the, the super scheme next door. And, I mean, I have, a, I have an unlimited card for Cinema World just because it means I can go and see films whenever I want. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's kind of crazy not to. Yeah. But um, it feels like even people like that who are paying money every month and regularly going to the cinema and maybe paying extras on top when they're at the cinema are being chunted out because they're wanting to attract people to VIP. Who's going to go to the cinema and pay VIP? Like, I want to meet these people that want to do that and pay 35, 40 quid for a finger buffet. And I don't even think there's a drink included in it. And yet, like, oh, it's, it's insanity. It's yeah. like... I'd um, love to know if they're doing okay with that. Yeah, I know. Um, but it is interesting, though, like, when you were talking about how these kind of indie films will kind of compete with the bigger ones because Chris touched on it earlier, like, the kind of the lines are becoming increasingly blurred between the two. That's true. So there's That's this true. sort of like, it's obviously been about for a few years, but I was kind of thinking about this a few weeks ago and how there's this kind of Trojan marketing thing that everybody's been talking about for a few years where the indies will put so much money into their marketing budget on top of everything else to market this indie film as a big blockbuster film to try and get the crossover appeal. Mm-hmm. And then the crossover appeal comes and people get disappointed because it's not marketed in the way that they think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, Drive was the biggest, Drive is the biggest that. example of that. You're going to see like a Fast and Furious film and then go exactly. Drive in, which yeah. is not that. Did someone not try and file a lawsuit against Drive or something like that? Because it was, <laughs> because it was missold to them. Obviously it was ludicrous and didn't go anywhere, but I, that's, that's exactly the perfect example of it. And it's... Interesting because, I mean, you understand why some of these indies do that because they do want a big appeal and a lot of these indies, if they do reach a big appeal, I mean, it, w- it might work and they, they can, you know, take in a lot of money. Like, Boom was one of the examples in a way. Like, well, it's not exclusively an indie. It was got a lot of a wider appeal than I thought it would, I think, and took a lot more money than I think people expected. But it also is sort of detrimental in a little way to the people that it's trying to attract because the way they cut trailers now to appeal to the mass market then put people who want to go to see indie films off of it because the trailers look so bloody awful because mm-hmm. of the way they're... Like, see the amount of films that I've seen recently that are maybe indie-ish, you mm-hmm. know, have got some big budget behind it and I watch the trailer, I go, that looks terrible, I would not watch that based on that trailer alone if I didn't know other things about the story. Um, trailers these days are absolutely yeah, terrible. Yeah, trailers. They either give away the whole film or they sell you a different <sighs> film. Yeah. Yeah, entirely. Um, so it's difficult, I think, for these to compete, but they are doing it, and they're doing it well to an extent. I guess the reason for that is now that people see, you know, a new trailer come... An example in, in work yesterday was the new Spider-Man trailer came out. Within five minutes, I heard someone talking about who was playing the Vulture. And because uh, people... It's, it's immediate, whereas before... The only place you really saw movie trailers was maybe on telly, but on other films that you've you been to see. So they already had the audience that they thought, well, I'm going to sell this to. We're not trying to sell it to a different audience, we'll try to sell it to you. No, it's... Uh... I think the way forward for is to maybe find a niche and play to it mercilessly. You know, like the example I'm thinking of is maybe like home video companies like uh, Masters of Cinema, Arrow, uh, BFI, and Extent, and now just this year, finally in the UK, Criterion, who mm-hmm. have been doing amazing stuff in the US for years and years and years, this kind of speciality art house home video label, like impeccable presentation that's like the byword for like the absolute finest, you know, DVDs, Blu rays, whatever, laser disc when they started. Um, and they finally launched in the UK this year, and a very small subsection of the populace was massively excited for this. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's the kind of thing that, like, you say to like 
99% of people. Criterion's coming, Criterion's coming <laughs> to the UK and they won't care, but like that 1% is going to be more excited than they've been for anything else this year. And you know, that, that's it. Like They're willing to pay a little bit more for something that they know is yeah. good that has like that market quality on it. Maybe even buy films that they've had before because they're now available in these Criterion editions that have like these like adi- additional you know features on them and have like impeccable audio-visual quality, all that kind of stuff, you know, it's collectors, it's who you aim at, no. are people who, you know, would get excited that Isabel Hopper is in a new film or something like that, or, you know, play up the kind of the auteur aspect, like, whoever's directing it, or maybe, like, this cinematographer is working on this, and you've liked him in the past, you know, it's like, it, that seems to me, like, a more profitable route to go down, ultimately, than, you know, than trying, trying to, to please to everybody, everybody yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. play up the aspects that, you know, will really, really get people who are into that already talking about it and trying to encourage people to go with them maybe mm-hmm. and then they can evangelize and spread the word about it themselves mm-hmm. um, rather than just trying to make Manchester by the Sea look like a standard weepy melodrama you know <laughs> that I don't want to see rather than something I'm massively excited about yes yeah. the new Ken Flanagan film or whatever that's exactly it yeah that's interesting um, I'm talking about independence then I'm going to do a little bit on my favourite books of the year, and the vast majority of them, just having a look here, are on small, independent publishers. Um, I'm going to start off with one which isn't actually which came out on Polygon, but Stuart Cosgrove's Young Soul Rebels, um, non-fiction, musical autobiography, you would say. Um, it's funny, because... As a writer, Cosgrove writes like he broadcasts. It's 100 miles an hour and he goes everywhere. Um, but for any music fan, this is a great book because it's about being obsessed. And he's obsessed with Northern Soul music. And um, he goes into it deep rather than wide, you know. He, he, and just for the recommendations, of the, he gives you lots of recommendations of music to go and seek out. I love that about a good musical uh, biography that makes you want to go and maybe discover things that you haven't previously but um, uh, at times very funny, at times really moving because he talks about a lot of people on the scene who for whatever reason are no longer there and um, I think it's a music, you know, there's screeds of books been written on punk and on New Wave and on Manchester or on house music or anything like that but not a lot on um, a Northern Soul music which was a huge scene for a short period of time, you know, in, in the 70s, wasn't it? In the mm-hmm. mid-70s. And, and Cosgrove kind of rectifies that a bit by going uh, into it. Um, uh, so for any music fan, I think you'll enjoy it. Um, there was The Waves Burn Bright by Ian Maloney, um, which is about the Piper Alpha... Well, it's set... That's the setting, the Piper Alpha disaster, um, which happened uh, uh, off in the North Sea of Aberdeen. But really it's about family um, falling apart as a, as a result of kind of post-traumatic stress disorder from someone who was involved on it. Um, and he, it's, Emil only's written a few books now, but I think this one is, is perhaps his best. Um, Pauline Lynch, known as P.K. Lynch, on her uh, book Armadillos, and that's because she thought better to be gender neutral. Um, which I think is an interesting thing. I don't think that's the case these days, but uh, this is something that she decided on. Um, Armadillo, was a, as a little aside, she was Lizzie in the original Trainspotting. I need to tell She's an actress as well as a writer. 
And uh, we spoke to her on the podcast, so you know anyone could go and have a, a listen to that. Um, her book Armadillos is set in Texas. It's about a young. It's incredibly. You know, you were talking about something that's dark with hardly any redeeming features at all, but you can. There's still something to, in inverted commas, enjoy about that. Well, this is really dark. The way it starts out that she has she, the character um, runs away from from home. Central character, young teenage girl, runs away from home, has to get away from home, and then ends up in a kind of commune, um, a city commune, which is led by a, a Scot, the one Scottish character in there, who's obsessed with um, a JFK's assassination. Which is, um, there's some lovely little touches in there. One of the people, it's called Armadillos, and one of the characters makes rubber armadillos to sell at the side of the road. and uh, it's, got, it's got great characters in it. Um, it doesn't shy away from its subject matter at all. It takes it very, very seriously, which is abuse, um, sexual and psychological. Uh, and it's a, it's a real triumph, a very difficult book to write, I would imagine. Um, David Rosses, he wrote a book called The Last Days of Disco, came out a few years ago, maybe even last year, which is set in uh, Kilmarnock um, and about mobile DJs, who, uh, uh, a couple of guys who are mobile DJs. Um, it's a phenomenon that, again, a bit like Northern Soul, came and went very quickly because clubs then became very... But in the early 80s, there really was a club culture. It really started, again, when house music came over. Um, that was one of the... Was it? Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. So people basically, any party, let's hire a mobile DJ. You yeah. have a number in the paper or in you know a local shop yeah. and say mobile DJ for hire. Yeah, and everybody had like an... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Aye. Or, you know, I, I remember going to a, a wedding years ago, one of the first weddings I went to, and the DJ turned up, and there had been a flood in his flat, and he only had turned up with four records. <laughs> one of which was Ghost Town. No, it wasn't that actually. That's, 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 that's the father's tale. That's the father's tale. It was the jam, Town Called Malice, that's what it was. I remember, because he played it over and over again. Um, and that's right, that when I saw that in Father Ted, I went, very similar to what happened. <laughs> um, anyway, it's a real, his follow-up is a, a book called The Rise and Fall of the Miraculous Vespers, and it's a um, young band starting out who eventually make it onto Top of the Pops. Uh, and I think anyone involved with the music business and involved in bands will recognise a lot of the stuff that goes on there. Um, and it actually came with this single that got them to Top of the Pops, um, which was written and performed by Bobby, Bobby Bluebell. Blobby Bluebell. Bobby Bluebell. So that's a really, it's a very enjoyable uh, uh, novel. I'm talking music. James Yorkson's debut novel came out, Three Crows. Um, and it's actually not about music at all. It's, again, it's very dark, which perhaps is, is, is not on... A running theme of 2016, eh? Yeah, it really is a running theme of 2016. Can't think why. But it's about a young guy who's in London, tried to crack it as an artist. is not cracking it as an artist, so gets invited to go home to a little village on the east coast of Scotland and does that. Um, meets on the way... Um, what we euphemistically call a character 
Um, a guy who uh, decides to kind of gub all his speed uh, and then sit beside him on the bus and <laughs> he back up and, you know, and he, he can't get rid of this character. Yeah. But, um, and it's got these brilliant um, first-person narratives in it uh, dispersed throughout, which are just great. Uh, another fine book to look out. I read quite a lot. I've not, in the past, I haven't read a lot of crime fiction, but I did this year, and The Dead Don't Boogie by Douglas Skelton, um, which was real noir fiction, but done kind of tongue-in-cheek. The main character speaks like um, James Cagney or something like that, uh, but it's, again, set in Glasgow in the west coast of Scotland. Um, and he's a kind of gumshoe, and there's, like, hard man priests, and there's, like, every cliche that you'd expect from that, that kind of... Hard-boiled good, detective. Hard-boiled detective, uh, Raymond Chandler-type stuff. But it, it's done with a, a, um, with a good sense of fun about it. It's extraordinarily violent as well. It's, it's kind, of, kind of like a, yeah, there are shades of Tarantino in it, without a doubt. Uh, collection of short stories by a writer called Lara Williams, and it's called Treats. Um, I love short stories, I, I think they're really underrated, not just form of writing, but um, um, people ignore them at their, their peril. Some of the best books of the last few years have been short story collections by Kirsty Logan and Annalisa McIntosh, Vicky Jarrett. Um, and Lara Williams Treats is, is up there with them. I'm going to have, hopefully have a wee chat about James Kelman um, later on. And some of his best work is his short stories, without a doubt. Um, so talking about indie publishers, these are all kind of on, most of these books are on indie publishers. Um, and that includes The Making of Mickey Bell by Kellen McInnes, which was such an experimental book. It's got a talking dog in it. It's got... Um, I, I think it's a Swedish, but it might be Dutch, um, porn star who's touring on a big drop-handle motorbike. Um, it's just, yeah, it's all sorts of weird stuff goes on in it. But I don't think a, a, a bigger publisher would have touched it with a barge pole. I think it's a really experimental, unusual novel, which actually works. It shouldn't, because there's so much stuff getting thrown at it, but it really does work. And I think that's interesting to consider. Doug Johnson's latest one, Crash Land, with Doug, you always know what you're going to get, it's 100 miles an hour, plane crashes, and we're off. And basically, I honestly read this in one night, just because you can't kind of put it down, you want to know what happens at the end. I don't think it's quite his best work, but um, it's if, if you like Doug Johnson, you've probably read it already. Uh, my favourite book of the year, after much... Um, thought is Kevin McNeil's The Brilliant and Forever and he's one of our best writers I think Kevin McNeil anyway um, Stornoway Away it was an amazing uh, debut novel it's again got talking animals this time a packer there was a lot of talking animals in Scottish fiction this year <laughs> there was a talking toad in James Robertson's novel as well but um, it's, it's set on an island it's um, an island where everyone's a writer and there's a competition every year called The Brilliant and Forever. And I think it's something like eight or maybe ten writers are allowed in. And there's a, the winners, the judges vote, and then there's a people's vote. And I can't really say too much without giving things away, but um, it's good. It, one, it, Kevin's also a great poet, and you can tell that in his use of language. But this made me laugh out loud at times, and then but it also makes 
commentary about how we view, how we value people and how we value what we're talking about today, art. So, you know, you were talking earlier about um, Patterson, the poet who writes poetry because he wants to write poetry. It makes, it gives him a richer life. Um, this is kind of looking at this idea that everything that you create has to be judged. And if it's not judged well, then you are a failure. And, you know, it takes that idea to absolutely to its extreme. Um, the brilliant forever is, is, is brilliant. Yeah. Um, Chris, have you got a to read any Yeah, um, much of my year is taken up. I mean, I should really learn to stop undertaking projects of this size, given my general reading pace these days. We were talking off mic about everybody's being generally exhausted by work, so I tend to go through it like maybe four pages at a time before my <laughs> eyes start to get heavy. But this year I finally decided to take a crack at Moby Dick. Um, Excellent which choice. was yeah very like loved it absolutely loved it it's exactly my thing which is um, archaic slang put in the mouths of sailors um, but <laughs> I um, like, ab- like absolutely astonishing piece of work but it did limit the amount of time I could devote to anything else this year given my pace of like you know a couple of pages a night before my eyes get heavy um, the one again as usual I always find one at least published this year um, and this year it was probably surprised to no one uh, Bruce Springsteen's autobiography ah. run, uh, which is in fact like not I mean indie, <laughs> yeah. an indie <laughs> but um, it's, it's great it's everything you could have wanted it to be I think it's the best like musician's autobiography that I've read since Dylan's Chronicles is just absolutely catnip and he wrote it. oh he definitely wrote it there's no mistake in that voice for yeah, anything else like, from the very first page it's like the, no, no ghostwriter could ever have done this could ever have pulled this off is been compared to like uh, his his narrative voice, and it's been compared to obviously his songs. But I think that's maybe a little bit off. I think that a closer approximation of it is um, his spiels between songs at his gigs. Yeah. You know that kind of rock and roll sermon kind of thing. Yeah. You know, where he, he, you know it's a big communal experience. We're all here to you know for the power of rock and roll, all that kind of stuff. But it's very much that kind of tone, just celebratory and you know communal, and everybody's involved and everybody's invited doesn't shy away from the darkness, it gets into his kind of, you know, troublesome relationship with his father and um, all that kind of stuff, his, his struggles with mental health issues over the years, which I know is something that surprised a lot of people when it came out, because obviously he's Bruce Springsteen, you just think he's this invincible figure who, you know, is like in his 60s now and still looks better than I have ever looked in my life. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, but it's just, this it's inimitably him, Yeah, know, I think, as I say, like absolutely but if fans haven't read it, I imagine fans who haven't read it already will all be expecting copies in their stockings at Christmas. Yeah. Um, but it does not disappoint in any way. I, I mean, I love, one of my favourite things about it is how deep it dives into the kind of world of Jersey Shore and all that uh, before you release the years. Like the early years, like it's split into you know volumes within the book. And the first volume is entirely about everything leading up to the, like everything pre born run. Uh, and those first two Springsteen albums, yeah. like the, the Springsteen canon generally runs like Born to Run Through a Tunnel of Love, right? That's like the ones that everybody can agree on are the, the great ones. But I still love those first two Absolutely. albums so much because they sound like nothing else that he did. Mm. And they just sound so kind of young and full of life. And, you know, just they're young man's albums. You yeah. Know? And that carries across. And yeah. like when he's talking about everything that went into the making of him in his childhood upbringing, even like another aspect of like the kind of childhood aspect really reminded me of is like Terence Malick almost you know this kind of like imagistic very like snatches fragmented you know just kind of portraits of uh, just growing up in mid-century America you know it really reminded me of like the childhood sections of Tree of Life 
um, to a degree, which again is not really necessarily something I expected from from Springsteen's from Springsteen's <laughs> memoirs, but uh, yeah, it's it's absolutely comes highest recommendation. Like it's more than Cars and Girls. It's more so much more than <laughs> Cars and Girls. I know uh, I have a friend who uh, refuses to listen to Prefab Sprout because of that song because of his loyalty to the boss. <laughs> so he will not be swayed on the, the not just that song, but any of that. Oh, that that's tainted them for him. Oh, that's completely completely tainted by Ridiculous. Cars and Girls. Yeah. What about you? Much the same time. last year, Ali, not got around to actually reading that much this year. Honestly, I used to be such an avid reader and I just can't seem to find time for it just now, which is a real shame. But aside, Springsteen aside, the only other thing I really read this year, which turned out to be fantastic, was um, just actually had to look up the name of it because I read it that long ago and I can't remember the name of it, um, was Sarah Pascoe's book, An- uh, ah, Anna, brilliant. The Anatomy of a Female Body, which was uh, just an absolute joy to read from start to finish. Um, it kind of takes on that whole thing that kind of Catelyn Moran started a while back mm-hmm. um, which I'm not although I'm not her biggest fan um, there's been a lot of books that have come out since then but she really seems to capture something that a lot of these other books haven't and um, I just think it's a really great book that a lot of a lot of guys should read yeah. because it goes through a really deep understanding it kind of aims to tell you what's written towards the female reader it gives you a kind of good understanding of a lot of sexism that um, women have to face mm-hmm. and a lot of targeted sexism in the workplace and their life and their relationships um, and yeah it kind of gives you a deeper understanding of all of that and it's absolutely hilarious from start to finish yeah, it's just written in such a such an honest way it doesn't seem like she's deliberately tried to write in any particular style other than just her own mm-hmm. scatterbrain style of um, comedy writing the way she speaks um, I just happened to come across it on a Adam Buxton podcast and she was talking about it. And I know, I heard that one Yeah, um, so that was, a, that was a really, really good read, and I'd encourage anyone to read it. Um, talking about music books, I read um, I'm Not With The Band by Sylvia Patterson, who's mm. uh, Scottish journalist who um, wrote for. So the Herald, She did, great regular for the Herald, but she wrote for the NME as well back then. Smash Hits. She was big at Smash Hits when it was in its glory years. Um, <laughs> Uh, and it's basically her life story again. She's from Perth originally, and uh, um, hard uh, upbringing, but then goes and then these books can be really. Uh, and then I met such such, and that's me in the corner with you know the boys from Bros and all this kind of stuff. But it's not that. It's very, she's a very funny writer. She's got a healthy disrespect for the job <laughs> and for the people that she meets. Um, but also bits at other times where she's just like, oh my god, I can't believe insert name here but uh, yeah Sylvia Patterson's I'm with the band is definitely worth um, checking out um, I think I should mention because it was such big news although the book came out last year Graeme McRae Burnett being nominated for the Booker Prize and being shortlisted for the Booker Prize this year which was astonishing really um, small publishers again Saraband Books um, Contraband which is an offshoot of Saraband so kind of even more niche and yet, um, here it was, kind of fighting for the biggest literary prize going. Even more so, I think, because like the persistent. Well, I'm sure we've talked about this before. If not on the podcast, and certainly off mic, is how much of a struggle it still seems to be to have Scottish representation in the Booker. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the time when you think about it, like the only Scottish winner of the Booker Prize in its entire history is Kelman. Yeah. Like, which is over twenty years ago now. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems astonishing given the, the richness and depth of the Scottish literary scene yeah. that that's still the case. Ali Smith's been nominated a couple of times, yeah. And, but yeah. 
but you know, and so for 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 his bloody project to then like come from you know quote-unquote humble beginnings mm-hmm. like that and, and make it onto the shortest days is absolutely staggering about, about, about um, I'm really pleased because it's a brilliant book and if you haven't read it yet you know you really should uh, and uh, uh, Graham's a, a great writer and Saraband are uh, one of these publishers these small independent publishers who are willing to take risks as I say they're willing to take risks on stuff I think there was actually an article in The Guardian about this just the other day um, that the bigger publishers aren't going to look at these people and they're almost using uh, the indie publishers to test the water with various readers and then maybe try and you know take them away and it's happened many times I know it's happened in music definitely that small bands have done well on an indie label and then um, you know EMI come up and, and hoover them up um, but uh, if I were nominate a man of the year I would say Graeme McCree Burnett was a man, was certainly my man of the year and it was an incredible thing um, just briefly, before I think we'll take a break because we've gone on for some time. Um, so Alistair Gray, who had a bad accident at the end of last year, and I went to a, a Songs for Scotland event just recently, and it was his first time back out in public, and that was great to see that he's kind of made um, a, a good recovery in that sense. Um, and the other thing I went to see recently was I went two events in one week that James Kelvin appeared at, which is incredible. You know, it's like Brigadoon, and then two of them come along. That, that's, that's all sorts of mixed nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Brigadoon, and then two of them come along. Yeah. Like, but it's, it's a real sighting. I think, you know, this, particularly at the Gutter magazine party where he read his own short story, which is in this uh, edition of Gutter, he seemed to really be enjoying himself, and he was getting a lot of warmth from a, a younger crowd than perhaps he knew. And it was fantastic to see. He's 70 this year. Um, I think there's maybe something to that when you say like a younger crowd again like it's, it's always the way with guys who are ahead of their time if you like is like you know at the time like Kellen's faced so much from, from critics over the years again going back to the Booker mm-hmm. you know just the, the controversy around him winning that was just so astronomical and the kind of the, the kind of ingrained class resentment I think that is that is projected on him by yeah. a lot of literary critics and um now you've got a generation of readers who have, you know, come up with him as, you know, the, the acme of Scottish literature. Yeah, because he yeah. is, he's like our one booker winner. So he's, and he's also like, writing yeah. uh, a, in a dialect or uh, uh, a local language is not that unusual, no. but when he did it, it really was. Absolutely. So now you've got, like, a, a generation coming up who have grown up with him, essentially. He's always been there. He's always been a figure in the Scottish literary landscape and kind of this... You know, I don't want to say like eminent greed, you know, or anything, yeah. but it's because he is still like there's fire in his belly and he's certainly not the establishment, you know, but at the same time he is required reading if you're at all interested in Scottish literature. And I think like now people are you know, are who have grown up with him always being there, like, see absolutely nothing the matter with that. No, no, absolutely. Like it's, it's not something that has to be fought, it's just something that's accepted. So that's maybe why he gets such a great reception from like a younger crowd because there's nobody there who still turns their nose up at him. It's just this is how this is how it is. Yeah, know? absolutely. There's an acceptance there that he maybe didn't have before. Um, well, it was great. It was great to see. Great to hear him reading something new and properly performing because you know he's, he's he's quite a presence on stage. Should also say he did have a novel out this year, Dirt Road, which um, if you get the chance to, I haven't, I haven't reviewed it yet because of various things, but it's a. It's the, perhaps the warmest thing he's ever written. It's about a father and son who go to America. There's loads of music in it. 
um, and uh, but written it all in his kind of uh, inimitable style. Um, I think we'll pause for a break, so we'll see you back after this. Cheers. So that was part one of the Scots Way End of Year podcast, and I hope you found something which we talked about, um, which piqued your interest enough to go and either see it or read it yourself. Next time round, as I said at the beginning, it's going to be music all the way. So we hope you'll join us for that. See you then.